Hello and welcome to Probably Science. My name is Andy Wood. I'm Matt Kirshen. It's it's a joy to be back. I'm going to just jump straight into the guest because uh, someone I've wanted for a while. Uh, you might know him from Reno 911, which is one of my all-time favorite comedies, now brought back in short form on Quibi and <laughs> also as a voice on freaking ev- everything. Everything. Rocco from Rocco's Modern Life, Laszlo and Clam, Ricochet, uh, Spire oh, of the Dragon. It's Carlos Alasraki. You, you guys everyone. are too kind. Thank you very much. And uh, as I said to you off air, sitting in my office next to guinea pigs, so if you hear the rattling of a plastic water bottle, that is not me. That is probably, I'm going to guess that's going to be Snuggles, because <laughs> we never see Coco drinking. She's a magic... Snuggles and yeah. Coco. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So I sound like a Joe Rogan comic already, right? <laughs> <laughs> I'd like to think you actually uh, you do still have like a giant water bottle above your office that I would you like that installed time yeah, to time. like Tom Hanks and Big if I were a little kid I would do that that'd be right next to the trampoline <laughs> but the ball bearing that keeps it closed would be like a bowling ball sized piece of steel you'd have to put your tongue against <laughs> I had a I had a pet, a pet uh, guinea pig named Clyde growing oh, up that's so cute he was he was my favorite well good now, as a voiceover actor, I would imagine a Clyde sounded like this. Boy, I wish I had a bowling ball-sized bowl in my water bottle. I can't tell if he's a, a little bit Southern lawyer and a little bit the guy who sits in front of the convenience store in the yeah, South. Yeah, Mr. Corleone, my offer is this. <laughs> my offer is this. Nothing, Senator. <laughs> I love it. Oh, speaking of animal voices, oh, I, I was going to wait until later in the episode, but I was just re- remembering this, and um, I thought you'd like to know that for the last 20-odd years, whenever I've seen a lizard, I'm currently living oh, out in the yeah. desert, and I see lizards every day. Whenever I see a lizard, I can't help but say to it in your voice, um, circa, I don't know, 98, when the 97. Go- Godzilla came out. Yeah, he, lizard, lizard, lizard. I took care of it for you. Yes. Yeah. So you hear that. That's Thank weird. you. That- I, I say that to lizards. When I see lizards, I say, here, lizard, lizard, you know, on, <laughs> in your voice as the Taco Bell Chihuahua. Somewhat yeah. on par, every time I get mad, and I'm not British, I just watched you know, the two Ronnies growing up in Faulty Towers and Python, and every time I get mad, I just say, bloody hell. It just rolls off the tongue so easily. Bloody yeah. hell. Well, you also, you, you're one of those guys who, you absorb voices and accents from everywhere. Like, I remember you, we were hanging out a while back, and you were talking about your... Yes. Was it your childhood friend who... His parents were from Scotland, Glasgow, or his yeah, dad was Irish, from Scotland. Irish, but living in Glasgow, and uh, John and Mary, and Uncle Danny, and uh, Auntie Liz, and all those characters, you know, I listened to growing up. And then, uh, as I told you, I brushed up by watching Rabsy Nesbitt with James E. Cotter, wearing the White Feather Club, Ram. But I, I think it's true of, of of how voiceover actors, or, or actors in general, operate. If you like something, something you want to emulate it. You know, there's certain comula- comics, I, I think, that we all like, that we... We emulate some aspect of them, but um, for me, voiceover-wise, yeah, it was just a uh, such a great environment. My parents were from South America, so Carlitos, no me digas, and and then uh, Carlos, you and Kevin go outside now, get get some exercise for Pete's sake. <laughs> so, you know, when you're surrounded by that, it's like it's like being the 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 the, uh, the, the scuba diver in the uh, in the aquarium. You're like, hey, listen to all these great fish. You know, you just you just soak it up, and so yeah, that's. I mean, you soak it up. I could be surrounded by all of those accents and yeah, still come out sounding exactly the same. You are one that people like to imitate, so you don't have to worry about that. So there you go. 
Right. Some of us are imitators, some imitatees. That's right. yeah. You're an original. I'm, a, I'm just a lithograph of other people. A mere nothing else. Nothing That's else all going it is. on You can that. get me That's at all uh, it is. Prince Charming uh, and Coinga Boulevard East. I'm curious, do you also have a good ear for music? I'm all right. I've been known to be a good uh, shower singer, but, you know, obviously some okay. of the acts I work with, like Cedric Yarbrough from Reno, is a re- we would do karaoke on the road when we would do colleges and he would just light it up. Um, John DiMaggio is another really great voiceover actor, great at karaoke. And Billy West comes from, Jess oh, Harnell yeah. comes from the music background. Tom Kenny, of course, Tom Kenny in the high seas, you know, singing all those oh, yeah, yeah. rockabilly and blues songs. So a lot of those... Yeah. Oh yeah, I've seen his band playing at uh they they closed out the sketch yeah. fest off and the actually party Tom Lennon last year. and Kerry Kenny, Kenny Silver was a singer in a band. I don't know about Tom, but Tom's very gifted. You know, you find a, a lot of people in these arts that are. I, I saw David Wayne and and uh, Aaron Hayes, who's in a movie with that I'll plug later on, uh, my movie, but uh, singing uh, their version of uh, of the uh, Pretender song. Um, uh, you were, what was the song? Uh, I whispered out. Hand in my no, pocket. Uh, yeah, I think so. I think it's Brass in Pocket. Or, that's what it's called, yeah. Yes. Um, what uh, is the movie you're all in together? And actually, this Saturday, uh, 7.30 Eastern Time, Horror Hound Cincinnati, we're doing a virtual screening. Uh, I'll get details and send them to you later in case this airs before then. Yeah. Oh, yeah, we'll put uh, that I'm in the show notes. The, the, Absolutely. The correct link, but uh, Aaron Hayes was part of that, and... Uh, uh, along with the many other people, Rob Belushi and um, my friend Joe Michelle Melian, we co-wrote it. I financed it. We made it. But I guess I was getting, referring back to Sweet. how Aaron Hayes sang her version of Chrissy Hine and David Wayne is playing the drums and playing guitar. And you, yeah, you, you realize how talented everybody is when you come to this watering hole called Los Angeles and or New York or, you know, as the case may be London or any big city, Chicago that how multifaceted people are and and you know you just that's you have to be that you know yeah it's insane right when someone's just a ridiculous guitar player yeah. but that's not even Prince, their top three you know, things when Prince that they laid do. down uh my guitar <laughs> just... gently weeps i think at the rock and roll hall of fame or whatever and you had clapton up there and you had jeff Beck, and you had all these guitar players and and then prince who really you didn't know <laughs> as this yeah. awesome guitar player yeah. just lights it up and you're like oh he was hiding that right holy yeah so yeah so carlos we like to ask our guests this before we get deep into the science stories what what if anything is your background in science and and that's ranged from classes you took at school or liked or hated to things you blew up in the woods with your friends we did the old uh vinegar and baking soda when i was a kid and shook it in a medicine bottle cap and watched it explode we used to take tuna cans (laughs) cut a hole in the top uh actually take the top lid off dump the tuna can, dump the can itself upside down, drill a hole in it, put a firecracker in it, and then set it in water and watch it launch. So there was jet propulsion. We should shoot bottle rockets out of uh, Coke bottles in the back of a liquor store. We would lean them all up at 45 degree angles and then <laughs> and then tie the fuses together and just watch them go. <laughs> our version of... Oh, interesting. Yeah, our version of a, a back, store, uh, back of the liquor store 21 gun salute. A definite fire hazard back in the drought years of the 70s. <laughs> yeah. A definite fire hazard. Um, we experimented with those lights like you see in the movie uh, Tangled, uh, where you take two sticks, cross them, and glue the uh, ends of a plastic oh. bag onto them and then yeah. put candles and watch the heat rise. Um, in terms of fi- the, the properties of physical science, I was a skydiver for 15 years. And so we're Whoa. talking about the science of aer- aerodynamics and how your body 
relates to the relative wind that hits it. And then you apply that to going in the skydiving tunnel, which when I had kids, I quit skydiving. And then you would go in the tunnel. And here's the, here's the scientific sort of uh, explanation of why sit flying in, in uh, skydiving is easier because you have a rig on your back which covers surface area where the, the rel- relative wind is coming up at you. It catches your rig and allows you to sit down very comfortably. When you're in a uh, skydiving tunnel, you don't have that rig on. So you have to provide that space uh, for which the air is going to occupy and lift you. Therefore, you have to tuck your chin to your neck and arch your back so that the air could come in and hit your back and make you rise along with your legs. And so those were properties of science and physics that, you know, I applied unknowingly and then started to think about. And then the dynamics of the parachute uh, itself. It's an airfoil where the back end is higher, is actually higher than the front end, allowing the wind behind you to push your canopy forward. And then when you go to land, you you do what's called a flare, which you pull your back risers. That pulls the back part of the parachute down like a scoop. So now your back end becomes lower than your front end and acts as a brake and slows you down. And that also probably acts a bit yes. like the way that a plane wing lowers the flaps does. as they're coming into land. Sort of just increases the... Of- well, yeah, it, incre- yeah, it so would actually, lower the stalling speed because uh, it increases the angle of attack that you correct. can get while... Going Correct. And actually, speed. as crude as it sounds, the windsock is a scientific instrument which lets you know as the parachutist which way the relative wind is coming. You always want to land into the wind. So the, what you would want to do, the, the windsock looks like a carrot. You would always want to eat the carrot, which means you want to eat uh, the, thin, the, yeah, the, fat, the fat end. Of, you want to eat the skinny end of the sock. The, 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 right, and then the right. tetra- tetrahedron was exactly opposite. You wanted to eat the fat end of the tetrahedron. So sometimes you'd be under canopy, and you look at the windsock, and it's pointing one way, and the tetrahedron is pointing the other way. And you're like, which one do I follow? And you're like, I'm screw it. I'm going for the sock. So these were all scientific formulas you had to uh, do in your head as you were landing at a at a drop zone. Yeah, you think they would decide on one shape and stick with that? Well, because the, if it's oppositely shaped, that's a well. Big sometimes for the you, windsock right? wouldn't properly show you a, uh, a crosswind on time, and the tetrahedron was much more sensitive. At Paris Valley. So if, if there was an issue of a, a dust devil or a crosswind, you would want to rely more on the tetrahedron, which was a little bit more accurate and quick to respond to crosswinds. So, yeah. Oh, that makes so sense. So 15 years of this, did you ever have any hairy yeah, situations a couple of downwind, where winds changed? Yeah, downwind the- landings. And I had a, a downwind landing that it was forced upon me, uh, and I, I cut it too short. I slammed into the ground. It shut my camera off. People come r- came running out to see if I was alive. Uh, I was, Ooh. and I, I merely just <laughs> really caused some severe slow swelling on my lower right leg, but uh, I got lucky. Um, I had one reserve jump. At, I think it was jump 336. The main parachute got tangled. It was what they call a, a low-speed uh, malfunction, where, wherein I had a full parachute, but it was in a line twist that I couldn't uh, reverse bicycle kick out of, and it kept getting faster and faster and pinned my head. So I, I did what's called I chopped it. And I pulled my reserve chute, and uh, I, I landed safely. So, um, Does chop mean take out a knife and sever the ties? I think in the old the... days it does. No, it really it re- oh, oh. means uh, pulling the, uh, the cord and releasing the O-rings, which uh, holds your canopy 
and then the O-rings release, the cord releases, which holds your O-rings together. They slip out, your canopy goes flying away, and then your, your reserve is, is spring-packed. So as soon as you pull that, that's popping out within two seconds. Oh. So, so it is, but it is still basically saying yes. bye-bye you're, main chute. You're getting rid of that and that's floating off into the distance. your main chute because you don't want it to get tangled in your reserve chute. That makes yeah. sense. You said it was actually full, but you, the, the lines <laughs> yes. were twisted? And sometimes you can land a parachute with line twists, but this was spinning me around at too high of a frequency where I could have landed with it, but I probably would have hit the ground at about 20 miles an hour spinning. So <laughs> you make that decision. That's what they call a low-speed malfunction. It wasn't like a bag lock where nothing's coming out and I'm still falling at 120 miles per hour plus. You know, Right. Yes. Right, so you do have a little bit more time to deal with it, and also the reserve chute isn't going to have to reduce such a quick speed. You're yes. already going yes. at a relatively low speed when the reserve right? comes all... out. That that yeah, that all. I mean, that all makes it. Is the is a reserve chute That's the same question. size as the is. main chute? Yeah. Um, yeah, at that time I was jumping at one thirty-five, and I believe the reserve chute was one thirty-five, and one is packed. The reserve chute is packed on top, the upper part of the parachute, almost like an airbag in a car. You know, it, it's packed in there pretty tight uh-huh. and it's that's done by a licensed packer a California whatever state you're in a licensed packer has to learn how to flat pack a reserve chute it doesn't have uh, it's not rolled so you want to roll your main canopy when you're when you're um, you want to roll the nose of your canopy and they have what's called a slider your slider comes out first that takes a, the brunt of the relative wind that's going to hit when you're canopy opens and then your canopy's rolled so that it opens more gradually uh, th- th- so that you don't go from 120 to a swack base jumpers do not have a slider and base jumpers do not roll their canopy they need their canopies to open like their reserve chute like instantly but when you're regular skydiving you need to roll your canopy because you don't want that you're, you're traveling at a higher speed right right base jumpers I th- don't they start with like the actual, is it called the guide chute? Whatever the, the little mini parachute uh, is if, that pulls out the main one. They have that in their a, hand a already, don't that's they? that's like 175 feet or maybe 500 feet or less, they're going to jump already holding the pilot chute out. Yes. Uh, if they're jumping off like they do in a bird suit, in a, in a wing suit off the fjords at Norway, and, you, and it's 3,000 feet, you, you're going to be able to cruise in that suit for about 30, 35 seconds before you have to open so they would just they would flat pack it without a slider, but they'd still have way more time to. I jump. I did a hot air balloon jump at five thousand feet, and norm, normally you jump at thirteen thousand feet. So at five thousand feet, I still had a twenty two second free fall before I had to open around two twenty two hundred. So how long is a free fall when you jump? Uh, from depending plane on at how you're flying, if you're if you're uh, uh, head fl- head down flying, it's going to be a lot less, maybe about forty five seconds. If you're belly flying. Probably about 55 to a minute. And if you have a wingsuit on, maybe anywhere from a, maybe a minute and a half to two minutes, depending how stiff and how wow. the wingsuit gives you a faster forward speed, but a slower vertical speed. So then you can right. travel farther, but uh, obviously have more time in the air with a wingsuit because you have more surface area. So this is... What's, what, go ahead. Sorry, go ahead. No, no. This is... No, this is yeah. great. I'm, I'm, I was going to ask, what that. are the different um, communities? Are there sort of rivalries between base jumpers, air, airplane jumpers, and wingsuit no, fjord there people? Were, there were never or... rivalries per se, but it was like a different group. Like, say if you went to a gun range, like 
which as a, a sort of a non-pro-gun liberal guy I am, my friend Manny likes to shoot uh, traps, trap shooting at uh, the Angels Forest thing on, I, on Highway 5, and I go trap shooting with him. And it's really challenging. He's very good. He's quite good. And you shoot with a shotgun. So he loves to do that. And other people love the, the machine, you know, the, the AR-15s and the pistols. And so it, it's a different discipline. Like there were free flyers and free flying means that you can sit, fly, stand, fly, fly in your head and do all kinds of goofy, weird, fly with a tennis ball upside down and pass it between each other. And then there were relative flyers <laughs> that were teams that were four ways or 10 ways or big ways that would do all their maneuvers and fly on their belly. So you had those two different disciplines. And yeah, there was sort of a friendly kind of rivalry, but there was always respect for anybody that was going out of the plane. Generally, the the relative flyers would get out first. They had bigger groups, and uh, they would they they would need more separation from the rest of the plane load. Uh, and then you have your tandem flyers, your first time flyers, which get out last because they open higher. So you had your different groups on the plane, you know. Yeah. I did one tandem jump one time 20 years yeah. ago, I think. And did you like it? it was, I loved it, yeah. I, I was also a little bit, there was a moment as we were descent, like once the chute was open, one of the corners kind of turned in on itself, didn't yes. flap out all the way. Yes. And he wouldn't, he wouldn't, I kept asking if it was like a real problem or a slight problem and he wouldn't answer me, which made me think it's like maybe a big problem. Yeah, so. I, I think he thought it was landable, <laughs> but he's like, I'm not gonna, I, I don't know if we can curse on here, but. Yeah, he says, yeah, I'm he not going to yeah, fuck yeah. with it. We're fine. But here's something that you probably didn't know, scientifically speaking, is that with tandems, you, you, uh, when you leave the plane within the first 10 to 15 seconds of free fall, your tandem master is throwing out a droke, which is like a – it acts like a pilot suit, but it's almost like a drag racer when that mini parachute right. comes out. The drogue slows down your relative uh, fall rate to about 120 because two people together obviously are going to fall faster than the standard 120, and you don't want – Right, because you're twice the mass, Correct. but you're roughly you the same surface area. The, the, the massive, that's a 300-square-foot parachute. You don't want that to open too hard, so you have to throw out the drogue to, to slow down your speed. Uh, well, speaking of that, do you is the thrill of skydiving, is a lot of it the feeling before you reach terminal velocity? Because that's a different sensation than the earlier part when you're in free fall where it feels like your guts are... <laughs> you know, gravity neutral, yeah, right? Yeah, you know, it's all relative because there, there there was no stomach sinking because you're so high up, you're jumping into a painting. But I will say that the there, there would be the thrill of me hanging on the camera step waiting for somebody to come out. They had a plane called a Sky Van with a big tailgate that opened up so you could run out the back. And they had a little step uh, out there that if you grabbed it while you were laying on your stomach in the Sky Van, you could grab it as you're leaning forward out the plane and then swing your body out and hang off the back of the plane and wait for the other, no. and wait for the other the jumpers <laughs> to come out. That, that part was thrilling. But I will say, jump... Because you're basically... Yeah, that, yeah, I mean, yeah. That's like that's Tom Cruise stuff there, isn't it? You're basically dangling fact, off Tom the back Cruise of a plane. jumped out of my friend Craig <laughs> O'Brien. Happy birthday, Craig O'Brien. He was uh, Tom's filmographer or videographer in that movie. And Craig and Tanya, Tanya Garcia was a world champion... Uh, uh, sky surfer and they got married they have a kid Sierra I think is her name she's older now but uh, but you the speed of exiting a plane is so overwhelming the noise and the speed and when I did my one and only balloon jump it was one of my second to my my second to last jump it was a decidedly different experience because I didn't have the advantage of the noise and the speed it, it was totally silent the guy blew his last flame and said, all right, get out on my balloon. 
And then I'm <laughs> stepping on this. Oh yeah, how weird! Of course, because you you normally have the you yeah, normally have the, the horizontal the sound, speed, the velocity and, and, of the plane, but you don't you're have any of that. Stepping on this plank, and below the plank is nothing, and you're like, I'm really jumping from something. So there was no disguise. I, it was such a pure sort of event that I was taking place in. It was a completely different feeling, and yeah, it took me longer to get my terminal velocity, which is why I had 22 seconds, even though. I was jumping at 5,000 feet instead of 13,000 feet, you know? And it, it doesn't feel like you're going to have that long, but you do. Yeah, I would think a mile. It doesn't right. seem... Right, well, I guess also, yeah, if we're thinking from a physics point of view, you don't... There'll be air... Res- there'll be horizontal air resistance when you're jumping out of a plane, but if you're jumping yeah, out of a balloon that's it, static... They call that horizontal you- air resistance period coming down the hill because you sort of go down and out and then go straight down. That is that horizontal resistance. The weirdest one ever, and normally, like in a normal skydiving run, let's say we're jumping in an otter, which holds 20 skydivers. You'll pass through the DZ, and in that case, they went north and south. As soon as you see the first possible time to get out, they put on a green light, the first group goes. You generally want to give them a nice eight-second separation before the second group goes, so that they have that horizontal and vertical separation. Then at Paris, they had an old jet with the old rear tailgate that used to have steps. Well, they took the steps out, kept the rear tailgate, and that jet's going about 170 miles an hour. So they just open the rear tailgate. They go, you don't need separation. Just jump right one after another because you're going so (laughs) fast that horizontal separation is immediate. And just you're going to get separation. And so that was a different uh, experience as well. You know, and again, all related to forward speed, vertical speed, how fast you're going, how much separation you need. And it's, it seems primitive, but these guys that are pilots and skydivers and, and, DM, and DZ owners, they know. They know what's safe based upon, you know, experience and, and, and using science and using equations, you know. Yeah. That's amazing. Do you, do you still get some of the? Does it scratch the same itch to somewhat to go to the parks, the indoor um, wind tunnel things? I think the challenge the of it does, but no, I still have dreams of jumping out of a plane. Nothing will will surpass or replicate that. It really won't. It just mm-hmm. doesn't. Um, I did. How many jumps did you do? We'll put this in perspective because over fifteen years, I did a certain amount of jumps. I jumped with skydivers that had fifteen to twenty thousand jumps. Because, you know, they had Jesus. sponsors. They did it every day. I, I had 723 jumps. That's still, amazing. Eh. That's still a hell of a lot. But, yeah, I guess if you're, particularly if you're one of those, yeah. if you're an instructor or one of the people doing the tandem jumps, so every day yeah. you're going out Craig with O'Brien, someone instructing Craig O'Brien, the aforementioned Craig O'Brien, who's a videographer, I'm sure Craig has well over 25,000 jumps. Because that's wow. what he did for a living. And then he did it professionally for movies. And, and, and all. he's worked on tons of films. And I think every... Uh, Mission Impossible Tom Cruise thing that's always Craig O'Brien with him and Craig's probably my age or older he is a tough son of a gun and he's had some hard landings and aches and pains for sure man it's it's a rough sport it's a lot of torque on your body and so is the tunnel like if you do here here's the deal like we would do maybe 10 skydives a day at my at my most but in, in between the skydives, you would have you would come down, you get your chute packed, you'd manifest on a load, and maybe have 20 minutes before your next jump if you're hustling. When you do 10 minutes in a tunnel, my friend and I will book 10 minutes uh, in a tunnel together, or actually we'll do 10 minutes a piece, right? So we'll we'll book 20 minutes, but it's two minutes in the tunnel, 
two minutes out, two minutes in, and by the fourth, by the third turn, you're exhausted because the <laughs> torque on your body in a machine that's producing a relative wind, if we're sit flying of 160, 170 miles an hour, is so much. Your body gets really tired. So what you do is you stand on the netting and raise your hand so that all the relative wind spills off and that, that way you can walk around. You can, it's sort of, but as soon as you put an arm out or give it some surface area, you're going to get lifted or twisted or thrown to the glass or the plexiglass. So <laughs> that makes me think twice. I wanted to go try it, but I know what trampoline parks do in my yeah. body now. So I probably shouldn't well, if you even try it. Try a minute first and then try two minutes, but it does, it's a, it's a lot of torque on your body for sure. That's amazing. So, yeah. Those yeah. Muscles the guys that, that are in there and they, they can do it and do all kinds of positions and make it look easy. It, the, you're, it's a, it's a lot of muscle memory. It's a lot of strength. And uh, it really tones you. It's, it's, a, it's an incredible workout. And it's all just relative air. So d- did that couple that you're friends yeah. with, did they get no, married I, skydiving? I, I mean, did, did they, they didn't do one of those skydiving mar- or give birth? Yeah. Like, I hope at least one thing. Like they <laughs> no, give I have been to some skydiving weddings. Um, but no, and memorials, unfortunately. <laughs> but no, I don't believe they got married uh, at a drop zone. But I did see a drop zone wedding for sure. <laughs> so, before we move on, how did you get into this? How did this become such a huge part in of your 89, life? In 89, I did it. Then I did it three times, did an accelerated free fall, and I was done. And I, and I put it on my resume, moving to L.A., skydiving. And my buddy, Colin Reno, uh, was an agent at uh, William Morris, and he saw it on my resume. And he goes, skydiver, huh? I'm going to go this weekend. You want to go? And I'm like, oh, he called my bluff. And so I went, and I did another tandem, <laughs> and I went, this is fun. And... I was young. I moved to L.A. I had Rocco's Modern Life. I had all this money. I was single. And I'm like, hey, skydiving's cool. And then I just got hooked, and I bought my rigs, and I got into the sport, and I went to skydiving boogies. I slept at the drives. I had a Cadillac. I slept in the back of my Cadillac. I, you know, I fancied me. I wanted to be a videographer, and I just got into it. It, it, it was very, that feeling of uh, this ethereal playground where you're just playing in air they used to do these things called cross-country dives where you would go four miles from the drop zone in taft and they knew that the relative wind if you went inland east would blow you back to the drop zone especially the uppers they're strong so you jump mm-hmm. out at fifteen thousand feet and pull your chute immediately a hop and pop and then you take a water bottle an empty water bottle and you throw it and it's spinning and falling at the, about the same rate as your canopy. So you chase your water bottle. And you can, with the uppers, you can, you can guide your parachute four miles all the way back to the drop zone while the sun is setting. You know, and that was just... Amazing. And then I did one or two night, night skydives, too, where they lit the drop zone with a couple of flashlights. And, uh, well, about... Ooh, that's... Yeah. <laughs> so there was all kinds of incredible feelings. And everything associated was... Uh, uh, I was coming into my own. I was becoming an actor, all those things. And so it was very appealing. It was very appealing. And uh, I, if I ever got a chance to do it and again for a paid gig, I, I'd love to do it at least one more time. You know, if my daughter, when she's 18, wants to go, I'll, I'll say, I'm going with you. Oh, that'd be great. Yeah. <laughs> Would you have to do a refresher course you, oh, you must have to sort of do something yeah to legally you're supposed to do what's the... called a hop and pop so i would have to get my cypress which is an automatic firing device that you have on your reserve chute in case you conk out with another skydiver and you're too unconscious to pull your main chute or your reserve or you're uh actually if uh-huh. you're too say you that's why skydivers wear helmets it's obviously not when you land and crash that doesn't help it's if you're in a 
big way with other divers and somebody can track what's called tracking forward speed and conk, conk you out and you can become unconscious. Well, if that happens, your Cypress measures air pressure and will fire a blade across your reserve chute uh, uh, opening and allow you it would deploy your reserve chute for you. Um, and so you have to get that rechecked, all that kind of stuff. You'd, I'd have to get everything rechecked. I'd probably rent uh, something, show them that I have a B license and have to do a hop and pop at 4,500 feet. No free fall. You just have to ju- go and pull your chute. And then that gets yeah. you back into status. This, I, I had no idea. Great. This is so much cool info. Now I want to go do mm-hmm. it again. <laughs> it, really ta- it really takes the mystery out yeah, of, you know, oh my God, skydiving. And when you tell people the statistics, most people getting, I'm sorry, Matt, I interrupted, but most people that get it I- injured or no, are no, under no, a full canopy and a hot dog in it and trying to swoop and do things they shouldn't be doing or jumping off cliffs and really risking it and, you know, trying to do uh, proximity flying, which is jumping off fjords and trying to get close to a oh, cliff. Oh, yeah, that's tough. So most <sighs> of the skydiving fatalities are due, are already, that somebody that's under a perfectly functioning parachute. It's very rare that you'll have a bag lock or you're, your tandem instructor's two shoots don't work. Those kinds of things are rare. So the sport itself is very, very safe. Uh, Relative to driving there on the way, you're more likely to get in an accident. And so when you discuss it in scientific terms, I think this is the point of your show, is when you discuss things (laughs) in scientific terms, it really takes a lot of the mystery away and explains to you whether something is dangerous, like hydroxychloroquine, or... Not like Flintstones chewables, which I'm, right, I wanted right. to brag and say that I'm taking Flintstones chewables, drinking, uh, I'm drinking lots of ethylene glycol, uh, antifreeze, uh, because my doctor <laughs> prescribed it for me for COVID-19, and nobody can prove that I'm not doing it, because my doctor said it, I'm, I'm taking it, so I'm taking yep. it. Yep. There is not a, there is not a chance not that he's one, actually taking hydroxychloroquine no, every day. Oh, is that what you guys think? Oh, yeah. Really? I didn't, I, that oh, yeah, the guy that's is, constantly cheated on his yeah. golf scores, had refused to wear a condom with a porn star, <laughs> the guy that won't show you his bone, bone spurs that he doesn't have and dodge the draft, you think, I, it's a shock that that guy would lie, right? I... I will defend him on that middle one. That porn star had way more chance of That's catching true. something from Absolutely. him. Absolutely, it gets us a lot more often. Yeah, but I guess what's the upside of him yeah. lying about the hydroxychloroquine? That he can still hawk it if he has it. Yeah, well, I I think there's two possibilities. I I, I don't know. I mean, maybe he is taking it, but I I think there's two possibilities. Either he's just straight up lying, like Carla suggested, or he believes passionately that he is taking hydroxychloroquine every day, and. They just yeah. happen to taste like strawberry, uh, okay. yeah. and his yeah. doctors haven't told him. It reminds him like, of, uh, of the, <laughs> the child he could have had and really loved. Um, whoops, did I just call them uh, male heirs to uh, freaking money? But um, here's the other th- side of it, too. He could be taking a dosage. Uh, hydroxychloroquine is basically like erythromycin. It's an antibiotic, which has worse side effects. But he didn't say what the dosage was. It could be one milligram a day. You didn't say you didn't. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's true. It could be a microgram a day. It could be He's microdosing. <laughs> um, yeah, because I because I know right because I, I a friend of mine had to take it for malaria uh, some years back, and he was posting on Facebook a while, a while ago about how much it just knocked him sideways. It's yes. really miserable. It's a really unpleasant so, drug with heavy side effects. Assuming you're taking no. it at a level of dosage that has so, that amount of and I so I would say if. If it's true, his dosage is so benign, is that the word, is that it's, it's nothing. It is like taking Flintstones right. chewables. Yeah, yeah. 
I mean, I wonder at this point if uh, everybody has just, it's so strange that everyone just accepts that the president is just someone who lies and we can all ignore him. Like on all sides, everyone is just sort of ignore When he says things like that, I don't know how you come back from that later, how you go back to a place where like a president says things and you believe I, I them. Think I think I watched this movie. It's called uh, it, Team Foxcatcher, I think was the movie um, with uh, Steve Carell. That Steve was Carell. more about... Uh, <laughs> Oh, yeah. The younger brother of the wrestler that John DuPont Jr. shot. The actual documentary about John DuPont Jr. is called, I think it is called Team Foxcatcher, but it's... Yeah, I think the movie, the, the fictional movie or fictionalized and, and, and movie the, is called Foxcatcher. I, I pleaded, warned everybody before Trump. I go, he's John DuPont Jr. He's, a, he's, he's literally a sociopath. It, it, uh it, what happened to the GOP is, I think they go, I, I didn't think this fucking guy could lie so much. Holy fucking shit. We thought we would just have yeah, to defend it's... one thing. But th- this guy, he, has, he does not have the capacity for empathy. He's a machine. He's a fucking uh, cyborg. He'll, he'll just yeah. do anything like the Terminator to defend his being. Anything. And the Republicans are like, we can't keep up with this guy. But he gets things done. Oh he gets it's results. Relative. I just can't believe, like, what would it take to get him? I know should, we shouldn't no. go into politics, but, like, the fact that he's actually saying things. Like, somebody or two people at least died of overdoses of hydroxychloroquine after he recommended it. How is that not enough for a president to at least get their Twitter account suspended for, like, spreading dangerous misinformation? Like, it's crazy. Well, what's more insidious than someone who is actually crazy is the people that know better and defend him. So yeah. that's yeah. how it happened. You you know, uh, Charlie Pierce is a regular contributor for Esquire and a guest on Stephanie Miller. And he said it six years, you know, when he got elected, he goes, do not be surprised at the level of complicity of the Republicans to rally around Trump. And I don't even think he thought it would get this bad. But in any case, we yeah. refer back to the fact that he's scientifically taking this drug supposedly called <laughs> hydroxychloroquine, which is basically a... a a malaria drug, which actually Elon Musk, speaking of science and electric cars, was recommending early on, too. I didn't know he turned out to be such a fascist, though, forcing his people to go back to work in, well, in Fremont. We, we do actually have, re- related to Elon Musk, we, we got a question. So two weeks ago, we, we were talking about, uh, uh, with our guest, was it Scott Vrooman, I think, was saying two weeks yes, ago that he saw a, a rocket launch, and it seemed quicker ah. than he was expecting and uh and one of our listeners wrote in with a question and I, i've got an answer and the answer is mostly your question was you, the answer to your question is no kevin but K- kevin wrote in uh saying um uh i would I was thinking about your quick discussion about rockets and how i also feel it should be a very ponderous ascent as we have all seen with shuttles etc but i think it has to do with the inclusion or absence of people on the craft ponderous rise to minimize g-forces while still achieving escape velocity without people you can save fuel by going almost immediately to escape velocity regardless of how many g-forces created he asked if that's correct um it is not correct i um unfortunately i so i sent it to a friend of mine who uh works in the rocketry world he uh but Annoyingly, we can never get him on the show or quote him directly without him clearing it with the PR people at his company, uh, which we can never manage to do. But he is our go-to questions about rockets. Yeah. So thank you. You know who you are. And I sent I sent him this question, and he replied, um, "Rockets are designed to carry as much propellant as possible. 
The more propellant you can burn, the faster you are when you're empty. Hence, higher orbit, more payload, etc. So you make the propellant tank so big that when full, the engines can barely lift the rocket off the pad. Any bigger, and the rocket would sit on the pad which burning, is- which is pointless. Typically, right, so you're just wow. like you're just setting fire to the ground. Um, so typically, the thrust to weight ratio is about one to one, where one means it would be hovering. Then, as you burn propellant, the weight drops and thrust stays the same, actually increases slowly. Um, so thrust to weight monotonically increases as the rocket ascends. Uh, so that that all makes sense so far. So basically. It, it's kind of like the reverse of what you were talking about with your parachute, where your downward velocity and the air resistance yes. become matched. Yes. And that's when you're still. In a rocket, when it's on the ground, uh, at the very beginning, you have as much mass yeah. in fuel as you can possibly do have just just slight so the thrust is slightly above the point where it would be equal and not move. But then as the fuel burns the thrust stays roughly the same it actually margin increases and the the mass of the rocket decreases because the fuel is burning so it goes up the weight yeah the weight um, of the fuel is as it's he, burning he, yes yeah so exactly so the, so the downward weight is decreasing but the thrust is approximately okay. the same so the rocket is accelerating upwards um but then he says the above is true whether human or uncrewed so I don't know why your listener observed they're faster in real life, perhaps because all the classic videos of launch yeah. show ultra slow motion around liftoff. Oh. Um, and then he says, uh, the respondent, uh, sorry, Kevin, has misunderstood G-limiting. It's true that rockets avoid squishing astronauts by limiting thrust to weight, even though that reduces performance, payload to orbit, etc. But those limits apply at the very end of the mission, when the thrust to weight would normally be very high. By this point, the rocket is way out of sight, and so no watcher would notice. Not just because this would make a great reality show, which I would like to produce and make millions. We should do tiny astronauts and hire dwarfs to go into space. Ooh. I yeah. wonder if it would be <laughs> a better use of, smaller. I mean, everything payload-wise yeah. costs. What's the average cost per kilogram to get something in orbit? Yeah, just just by having someone yeah, a tiny bit lighter. Yeah. Just well, anyone Brad with dwarfism or shorter or children. Why do we? He'd love it. Well, he would love it. Uh God, we've never had Brad on this show either. <laughs> Thanks for the reminder. Um, we, um, we, uh, or child mm-hmm. astronauts. That would save a fortune. <laughs> hey, man, I'm, in, I'm enjoying <laughs> lost, unwitting child lost astronauts. in space on, uh, on, uh, on Netflix. I love it. Well, yeah, they actually have something uh, very similar to that. I don't want to do a spoiler, but they have to launch a ship, and they can't fit all the adults and the kids, and the, the, the woman sort of, the young girl comes up with that similar formula, saying that we have too much weight mass which will not allow us to escape the atmosphere if we get everybody on the board. So they decide we're, we're going to jam all the kids on and you guys got to go to a separate thing later on. But so they're using basically that same form. There's too much weight mass. We won't escape. Yeah, yeah. We won't be able to launch from the. Yeah, that's exactly it. Um, and then, then he just, just finishes by saying, um, by the way, the G forces experienced are just huh. the thrust to weight ratio. That's all. That's all it is. And then, um, and then also says that the bit about uh, in the email about saving fuel by going almost immediately to escape velocity is huh. that's that's not right. But, <laughs> so sorry, Kevin, but also thank you because you prompted a really interesting bit of information. Yeah. So thanks for the curious if that question. Means that every pretty much every rocket, since they would all start off at this one to one thrust to weight ratio, do they all kind of follow a similar like at X time past liftoff? Are they all? 
are most of them going the same speed at, at 10 seconds in at 20 seconds in or does that vary based on like what kind of fuel or i guess it would vary depending on how at what rate proportional to the overall mass you're burning fuel yeah. which would probably depend on the engines used i guess if i had Listen, to guess it's not rocket science yeah. oh wait a yeah. second that, that's that's, that's <laughs> exactly that but yeah, hmm. I, yeah thanks, really thanks cool. for the email and yeah. and thank you, our anonymous friend, for the thorough explanation. And, and speaking of um, propelling um, things forcibly out of a, yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> what trying to transition into Eric Boyce for its article about uh, Antarctica researchers who get the giggles as penguin poop produces laughing gas, so which is a great song by John Fratelli. Oh, yeah. Break out the penguin poop. <laughs> Break out the laughing gas. If you don't know what the song is, John Fratelli. He's from Scotland. The Fratellis. Great band. He's from Glasgow. And uh, oh, yeah. break out the laughing gas. He must have been talking about penguin poop. I didn't know. So that is weird. Uh, so is it, it beyond methane, it's, it's different than methane then, right? Yeah, no. Ni- nitrous oxide uh, is just <laughs> one of many air pollutants that, have, that has a detrimental effect on our climate. But for researchers studying nitrous oxide pooping king penguins in Antarctica, it had an unexpected effect on their cognitive state. Uh, a recent study published in the journal Science of the Total Environment reports how Professor Bo Elberling and his team from the University of Copenhagen's Department of Geosciences and Natural Resource Management went, quote, cuckoo while working wow. surrounded by penguin poop. So they just started laughing. Words, not mine. Yeah, so penguin guano produces significantly high levels of nitrous oxide around their colonies, Professor Elberling told AFP. After nosing about in guano for several hours, one goes completely cuckoo. One begins to feel ill and get a headache. Oh. Besides being a strain on the climate... <laughs> It's 300 times more damaging to the environment than carbon dioxide, by the way. Um, Besides that, nitrous oxide is also a sedative gas often used in dentist offices. Uh, The side effects of the sedative, also known as laughing gas, include feelings of euphoria, relaxation, calmness, and fits of giggles, as well as confusion, headaches, and nausea. Yeah, I mean, this is the same stuff that you'll see people with balloons at parties. and Maybe you will. So so beyond, so yeah, we're not talking helium that makes your voice funny. We're talking about... No, nitrous oxide. Wow, so, yeah. but this doesn't sound like it's the happy dentist kind of stuff. That must be synthetic, right? This. No, I mean, I think that if you're talking about just nitrous oxide, that's just NO, NO2, NO3. All right, so it um, seems like yeah. a moderate amount of uh, penguin guano would be good if you're rolling around in too much of it. So you need to, to measure it out like these pot distilleries. You need to get it measured just right so you can sell it uh, at a roadside kiosk hey, man, we're going to compete with these pot distilleries. <laughs> We've got penguin guano. This is a good got amount. You won't get nauseous, and you'll yeah. be happy. And it's like a yeah. trip to the dentist without you know, the Rx, and without the prescription. You don't have to have a, a PPO or whatever, or you don't have to have a health plan. You just... Yeah. Well, you also won't see all those like unpleasant canisters that, that yes. people leave lying around at right. festivals. Yeah, music festivals nowadays is always the little cat because that's the way they get the laughing gas now. Is from they're the for, they're for um, it's, it's sold for it's now, meant to be for cream whipped cream dispensers, be- and instead you just bring that's a right. couple of penguins into the festival, and then it's all organic. It just goes into the soil afterwards. It's actually good fertilizer. Yeah, but you're you, you're improving you did the that land. It's bad for the environment. So you just bring a few penguins. Well, George Miller well, must have been a genius by calling it Happy Feet, right? <laughs> I was, you know. Wait, George Miller directed them? Yeah, I worked on both of them. Mad Max, Fury Roads, George Miller? I worked Miller? on both of them, and he and Robin Williams together were two of the nicest human beings. No sense of of fame or anything. Just the n- nicest experience you could ever have in your life. He directed both That's of awesome. those. He also directed Babe Pig in the City 2 and Zeus and Roxanne with Steve Gutenberg. 
and Ann Archer. Imagine just sitting down one night and watching Mad Max Fury Road, Babe Pig in the City, and Happy Feet, and be like, yeah, this is all the work. This is the same, same body, body of work. work. Yeah. This is one dude. Yeah. But he, he got it the right. same human uh, being. I guess that was the... Yeah, those are they all They were great. dancing because they were high on nitrous oxide. <laughs> Which is N2O. I got it wrong. It's but we were joking. Uh, yes. There are many great Morgan Freeman impressionists. I think Josh Robert Thompson is probably number one. Uh, but it would have been nice to say... They need to keep warm in the winter months, and luckily there's plenty of bat penguin guano to keep them happy. <laughs> yeah. I would put you up there. I would put well, you up there. Well, with no, him. Josh Robert Thompson, just go to, I don't know if you know Josh, but his, he was the voice of the skeleton on the Craig Ferguson show, and uh, he, his Instagram is phenomenal, but you must, Frank Caliendo does a good one, Tom Kane does a good one, but whoo. You will be surprised at the voice that's coming out of this white boy, as he says. It is so good. It is so good. I, it's like me doing my Bernie Sanders, and then you go, no, 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 no. James Adomian. That's who you have to go to. James yeah. Adomian. Yeah. So. Oh, yeah. We've had He's on the podcast in the early days. God, he is he's one of my all-time favorites. But in any case, we, 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 I, I took you away from the science of... Uh, oh, no. We mostly got through the... Um, yeah. So you can... Um, We'll link to this article yeah. in the show notes. So, yeah, the nitrous oxide is a result of the penguin's diet of krill and fish, both of which contain high levels of nitrogen. After defecating, nitrogen is released from the penguin guano into the ground, where soil bacteria convert it into the greenhouse gas nitrous wow. oxide. And the end result, that, that, is, that is the laughing gas. So they were studying, if you're wondering what they were studying while they were getting high on the laughing gas, uh, they were studying the impact of the penguin's nitrogen output and glacial melting on the levels of air pollutants in South Georgia. You know what? I'm going to go ahead and say that my doctor is prescribing that for me to cure COVID-19. <laughs> I've been taking it for the last uh, three weeks. I don't know if penguin I told you guys. That every every yeah. day. Is that why yeah. you've got that penguin? Mr. Popper's penguins. He's <laughs> popping. <laughs> Mr. Popper's popping. Pop, pop, I just thought popping I was... penguin poop. Oh, we wrote a song. We wrote a song. <laughs> <laughs> well, while we are talking about frozen stuff and and uh, creatures, there is this story sent in by um, Holly Gabrielson of Arvada, Colorado, <laughs> and uh, so frequent frequent mm-hmm. friend of the show, and you know, roommate slash fiance mm-hmm. of mine, but. Um, Scientists melted ancient ice and a long dead worm well, wriggled, wriggled out. out. Mm. So, yeah, in a, all sorts of aliveness. Um, a team of biologists melted some Siberian permafrost to look for microbes, and an ancient survivor waved hello in the slightly floral uh, writing of futurism.com. But it is linked to a Washington Post article, so I do trust it. On the uni- University um, Tennessee microbiologist Tatiana. Uh, Vishnivetskia. Good work. Uh, petri dish. Yeah, thank you. Um, that's a solid s- a science scientist yeah. name from a Hollywood yeah. movie as well. Like that's real. Like Tatiana Vishnivetskia. That's like a real. I mean, that's a good, good blockbuster. And it's gonna be, some... You know, it's gonna be played by Scarlett Johansson or yes. Tara Reid or somebody. Yeah. But yeah, yeah. That that's yeah. incredible. That is so um, Mary Shelley. That there is hope for Disney. Right, the cryogenics. Does, <laughs> does does that mean? Oh yeah. But did that work? Obviously, at some point, you you're asking yourself, how did the worm um, perish? Yeah. So That's well, so, it so didn't. Weird. I don't think it perished. So this is the thing. So it 
So it was on the Petri dish. It was, there was a small pile of nematodes, half millimeter long roundworms, that sprang back to life as the Ice, era fro- ice Age era frost melted around them. The Against All Odds survival story may suggest that life could survive extreme conditions, including those on other planets. Uh, Vishnyevskia, uh, I hope, I'm saying it differently every time, but they're all good versions, uh, thinks that the worms, which are the most complex organism to survive being frozen and thawed, so far, at least, are 41,000 years old. She suggest, yeah, she, so she suggested to the Washington Post that they could have survived indefinitely in the ice as long as the permafrost stayed stable. If they survived 41,000 years, oh, I have no boy. idea what the, the evangelicals are not going to like says, those worms. As <laughs> <laughs> yeah. uh, so that's nematode expert Gaten Borgany of Belgium's Extreme Life um, Isjenska Institute. As a voice actor, if I were to- one of those worms, I would have Go to give him the John Lennon voice. Yeah, we're forty-one thousand years old. We're older than Jesus, and there, and thus start a controversy all over again. <laughs> see, um, see, I, what, what, I, I know we're getting away from uh, worms and science again, but what's I, I've gone for a couple of um, uh, cartoon voice acting auditions, mostly yeah. with little success. Um, uh, the one time I did land one, I was actually—I had to follow the aforementioned John DiMaggio yeah. in the booth, which was yes. maybe the most is intimidating. Is he the voice of Fry on Futurama, or is that Billy West? Bender. Oh, he's the Bender. voice of Bender, okay. and he's the—and he's um, few voice, few of the main voices on Adventure Time, and he—he's like one of—he's like Carlos, one of those guys yeah. who does every. Like, there's like yeah. six people who do almost every cartoon voice in Hollywood, um, and friend mm-hmm. of the show Lorraine Newman Lorraine's is another amazing. one. There's just like, yeah, just one of the, yeah, I think once you get a reputation for you can do the job and you can do five different characters. So that's exactly what he did. He went in and knocked out five different characters while everyone from Nickelodeon gathered to watch. And then I came in and struggled through my one for twice as long. It's it's (laughs) It's relative to what you do, right? But uh, yeah. um... Uh. But what I was going to ask is that there's that process when you go for the audition or when you have to, I'd imagine you you mostly just get given the gig, um, where they give you a picture of what this character is and a brief character breakdown. And then it's just your job to come up with, like, what do they sound like? And with you, what happens? Do you start going through sort of little mental Rolodex of people you've met and celebrities and people from your life and what what you can kind all of mix of stuff, and match all kinds to of create this thing people you might know billy west had always said that celebrity mashups are a good thing mr crocker from fairly odd parents is a a hybrid of you know harry shearer's work of uh montgomery burns from the symptoms mixed with richard dreyfus and gene wilder you know so you get a mother harry fairies which is very close to set <laughs> my kids are sleeping but so yeah in, in, in that case you, you know you blended uh and then you you borrow from yourself, you know. Yo quiero Taco Bell. If you went to Inside Out and you looked at the Brazilian heli- uh, helicopter pilot, come fly with me, Cachinha. Just slightly different, you know. Rocco, um, sort of a more Cockney than Australian, but and then if you take him and you remove this accent and go, hey, Scoutmaster Lampus, you're pretty much in the same octave. I did Panchito. It's a pleasure to see you, Donald. And then if you do this, I'm doing Mike Wazowski, which I've done since 2001. You're right there in the same same octave, and you just drop a few things, and you, it's all manipulation. And, you, and so you can dance around and learn tricks. <laughs> so oftentimes it's from a physical drawing that you get or or 
they're saying they want to, oh, a John, a John C. Riley type. Hey, what's going on, guys? Hey. <laughs> oh, man, this is just this is nuts. I'm on this island. There's this giant gorilla and he's chasing him. You know, so sometimes you're given an archetype or with Rocco, he had these big eyes and his teeth were to the side and a big long snout. And it just looked right to me. And I, I just happened to guess right, you know. Well, Tom Kenny was SpongeBob. You can't imagine any other voice coming out of that little yellow sponge, although there were probably several people that auditioned. And Tom just had the right voice at the right place at the right time. And, and same with John. John has a really good instinct. And, and, and basically, yeah, you're, you're using different tools. Um, I finally got to do this. There was a little kid in summer camp named uh, Brandon, and everybody picked on him, so I used to help him out and brush my teeth with him, and he, he would talk like that. Instead of saying lanyards, he would go, we're making lanyards. They're making, f- and they're making fun of me. And so I, I finally got to use that in uh, Kiko, uh, playing a kid that talks just like that. So, you know, you draw from life experience or whatever. Or, or Matt, if I want to work on getting a British accent, you know, reasonably close, I would spend time listening to your podcast and try as best as I can to, to do it. You know, I'm going to, yeah. Well, I, I'd mess you up then because... Uh because my accent has yeah shifted because i've lived it too long like just then you said podcast which is how i would often pronounce it but five ten years ago when i was more my original accent i would say podcast no you wait really accent in the second syllable really well i'd say pod no i'd say your podcast podcast. podcast. your podcast was on the weekend and you do you say weekend I say podcast? How would I say? You still say and second frus- accent, second. So. Uh, no, I say weekend at the weekend. Wait, Matt, you think you say you think you say frustrated. weekend with the first syllable? So, so yeah. What are you? What are you doing? No, no. Weekend? You say weekend. So you you still say weekend. That, that's, that's an interesting. We're getting back to science the and the erosion <laughs> of, of of voice or of tone or of dialect. As you immerse yourself through osmosis, you become less of the original quality that you were, right? My my mom was still has her Spanish accent. My dad was British educated in Argentina, so he has no accent. He was the the headmasters were called the Vibars. They're in Loma, and they spoke beautiful Spanish. But they instruct. It was a very Hogwarts St Albans looking school. The Vibars. I guess it was my dad a good student. He goes, "Oh, your father, good old boy, never had to give him six of the best." And so for many years in Argentina, while my dad grew up, he was going to this British school. And now in his later age, and even when he came in the 50s, he had no accent at all. He was able to train his ear to do something else. Well, my mom did not have that. And she was a Carlitos esto sign. And so this, your, your experience is experience of osmosis. You're, you're becoming less of an original quantity of something or quality of something and, and well yeah and i and i i wonder now whether i'm sure there are studies that have been done on this but i, I wonder whether within the english speaking world accents are less dis- distinct now than they would have been 20 years ago because of just how much more intermingling there is everyone's watching yep. YouTube videos and other social media from so yep. many other countries simultaneously. There's so much more communication between people from different, firstly, different cities within the same country and then different countries. It, I'm oh, yeah. sure it is. That happened just... I, I, I'm sure it did. I, I mean, know, that t- happened within the westernization of civilizations, you know. Whatever we exported 
exported became part of a, a culture that had no link to us beforehand. And so, you know, you go to China and go, hey, Big right. Mac, dude, you know, but what? <laughs> you know, where did you hear that? Yeah. You know, you're right. I think you're absolutely correct. We're so intermingled now with so many forms of communication that we're able to sort of just s- slip in or borrow. And, and that happens physically. That that happens, you know, it, it, it is very interesting. It, 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 it's very definitive. Like if you live in New York you're going to be and you're a voice actor I think you're going to be better trained to do more character voices you know all those theater people they they live it they see it they there's in close proximity to them uh it's like yeah let's let's call it catching the cultural virus <laughs> you know you're 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 swimming yeah, around yeah. these people all the time and if you're paying attention you will whereas uh, you know you grow up in a rural area like I did I was lucky cuz I grew up in Concord California blue collar 60s and 70s and we were all pretty much the same, but uh, luckily my best friend's parents were from Glasgow, and um, and I, and my parents loved PBS television, and we and we watched Monty Python. So without those two entities existing in my life, I don't become the person or, or have the career that I have uh, doing voices. I would have been just like yeah. everybody else growing up in Concord, California. Uh, Save. <laughs> Yeah, and I think if you move to New York in their 20s, you're not going to have the same experience that you had as a kid when your brain is still yeah. malleable, having so much diversity of sound coming yes. into your head, you know? Yeah. Oh. Just to finish off Sorry. the stories, so, yeah, uh, so Borgany, no, not at all. Uh, I love details like this, but uh, Borgany told the Washington Post that nematodes survive in the harshest environments on Earth. They've been found miles beneath the surface of the Earth and in oxygen-deprived mine sharks, for example. He sees the animal's usual resilience here on Earth as a sign that life could exist on other less hospitable planets. It's very good news for the wow. solar system, he said. Yeah, so you, when, you, years. when you think about movies like Elysian and, and The Martian and, you know, obviously it seems to be at least the goal of Elon Musk to, to hasten the uh, speed of discovering other planets and like this one is is going to rid itself of us. We're the virus, right? <laughs> Everybody's always said that. We're sort of the virus that... Uh, I don't know about all that. <laughs> I, think, I think we'll be gone. I, I, I think we're, we're... Well, I mean, eventually everything's gone. Well, but, yeah, yeah. I, think, I think other species of creatures will live long, be you know, like worms or whatever. We're, 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 I, I think exponentially destroying it at a pace that we've... Oh no! I definitely but, yeah, yeah, yeah. But but I, when people when people anthropomorphize the planet and act like it's it's like uh, shaking us off, it's like no, the planet isn't a thing. It doesn't care. It doesn't have any no. It's not mad like at consciousness. Us. It's just it's, it's right. not mad yeah. at us. It's like it's occupying a solar system and providing air and oxygen that humans can breathe and sun and and water that we can drink. And it may not be always the case for this species to survive. Whereas the worms like, Hey, works for me. I got, yeah. I got a better parking yeah. space now. Yeah. <laughs> 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 and at 41,000 years old, these worms are like prime candidates for this yeah. fall at, at the, at the, at the ballots. Right. I mean, like yeah. old, old nominee. Yeah. Um, that, I Claire. get it. We got a bunch of old people running for president. Plus you get you all get the yeah, when I uh, was a kid, 41,000 years ago, <laughs> they didn't have humans. They had T-Rexes. <laughs> <laughs> so the Dana Carvey old bitter old what was the name of the Dana Carvey weekend update character he bitter old man grumpy old grumpy old man yeah yeah and we liked and it and we loved it Matt do you think we have time for one more or should we wrap it up I think 
I think we have time for a. a how, uh, how do you feel uh, about a mother sure. story? Yeah. And then, and then maybe we could, if if you've got an extra couple of minutes, maybe we could do yeah. some bees as a Patreon bonus. Oh yeah, sure. Uh, I'm going to put this mud flow story in here because it's just something that popped up on the BBC News today when I was looking through. Um, while we're talking about living on other planets, this feels appropriate. Mud flows on the red mud flows on red planet behave like wow. boiling toothpaste. There's a video that accompanies this. So scientists have made a surprising discovery about Mars by playing with muck in the laboratory. An international team of researchers wondered how volcanoes that spew mud instead of molten rock might look on the red planet compared with their counterparts here on Earth. In chamber experiments, simulated Martian mud flows were seen to behave a bit like boiling toothpaste. Under certain conditions, the fluid even began to bounce. <laughs> the mucky guns resembled a certain type of lava referred to as... Oh, here we go. Uh, Pahoho? Pa- Pahoho? I think so, Pahoho. P-A-H-O-E-H-O-E which is observed at Hawaii's famous Kilau, uh, that's Kilo- Kilau Kilauea volcano. Is that how you spell Kilauea? Kilauea? Oh, I think you're almost certainly right there. Um, the uh, the, re- the uh, research results could now complicate some investigations of the Red Planet, believes study lead Dr. Petra Broz from the Czech Academy of Sciences Institute of Geophysics. You'll look at some features in space and you won't know for sure whether they are the result of lava flows or mud flows. Damn it. Without a geologist on the ground to hit them with a hammer, it'll be hard to tell. So we need to get a hammer onto Mars now. Apparently. Elon wants to be the person to bring that hammer yeah. to Mars. It sounds like somebody discovered flubber. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It bounces. <laughs> <laughs> well, it, I've also been, I don't know about you, that's, I read this story uh, a couple of days ago, and ever since then I've been trying to do my bit for citizen science by standing on the roof of our building and throwing a hammer as Could hard as possible that in silly the direction putty of Mars. Is in trouble? <laughs> <laughs> That's I also love this, this story makes an analogy um, to, t- to make something relatable it tells you tells us that it behaves like boiling toothpaste you know that thing we've all yeah. experienced boiling toothpaste exactly <laughs> yeah, it just does. yeah I am more confused well, than when they just in my mud. day we didn't have the vapor rub we used to boil toothpaste <laughs> for mint <laughs> take a take a lighter take a cigarette lighter to your toothpaste and then you'll oh, see exactly is... how Martian mud behaves um so, Dr. Broz had a skeptical view for a long time about mud volcanoes on Mars. The phenomena are well known here on Earth, but he's actually spent several years trying to disprove an interpretation that large numbers of con- conical forms on the red planet might be the same thing. Eventually, he came around to the idea, and that led him to wonder how mud, uh, if it really does spew from the ground on Mars, would behave in the extreme cold and low-pressure conditions. So, he went to Dr. Manish Patel and his team at the UK's Open University that has a special chamber that can recreate the Martian environment is the kind of setup in which equipment destined to go on a space agency rover would be tested. Uh, so normally they keep it spotlessly clean, but instead they were tipping muddy fluids all down this sandy slope. And under Earth conditions, these mixes behave as you'd expect. They're smooth, like gravy poured onto a dinner plate. But under Martian conditions, the mud progresses via a series of ropey and jagged lobes. It all comes down to how the low atmospheric pressure, which is less than 1% of the Earth's, makes water rapidly uh, evaporate, boil, and ultimately freeze. The skin on the fluid freezes, but this flow is thick enough that the inside remains fluid. I wonder if the aforementioned worms could survive on Mars in those conditions, like... Yes. There's only one way to find out, and that's by ruining these precious (laughs) specimens. Let's let's bust them out of the lab. Um... 
so the skin will the skin will stop the flow for a bit, but then the momentum from the fluid inside breaks through the weak points of the skin, and the flow propagates forward. It's just like this bahoho, except it's molten rock. But again, it's except that is molten rock rather. But again, it's a cooling skin that forms before oh, hot wow. material bursts through. And yeah, looking at this picture now, yes, I've seen videos of bahoho flows, yeah. and like, have you seen that coke can getting taken over by slow moving lava? Yeah, Things like yeah. That. Nobody's seen that. Yeah, yeah. It's a, uh, it's interesting. By the way, um, they they did subsequent experiments where they flows repeated for a hot day on Mars, where it can get as high as twenty degrees C for short periods. That's pretty warm. That's toasty. Yeah, that's room temperature. That's right? room yeah. temperature here. Wow. Yeah, it's just around seventy Fahrenheit. Sixty-eight, but okay. And realized that. <laughs> Sorry, it's around. Uh, I didn't realize wow. that Mars got so balmy. Um, but yeah, I'm feeling better about right? living there now. I don't know about yeah, you. Yeah, wonder, Carlos, if you had the chance back in the in the heyday of your um, skydiving, risk taking years, if you had known there was a if there was a call like SpaceX style for people who were willing to go on a 300 day mission to Mars or 700 days, would, is that a thing that young Carlos would yeah, have without signed kids up for? and having the money? I, I probably would have done it foolishly. Yeah. I don't think they would have needed money if they would have paid you money, but you would have given up a year of your life and been in, you know, yeah, solitude. Yeah, what the heck? I'm not a great sure. farmer like Matt Damon, but I would have given a shot. <laughs> <laughs> um, Carlos, we, we, should, we should wind up the main episode, but uh, and then maybe we'll sneak in a little bonus episode too. But um, how do our, firstly, how do our listeners find you and how can they Hopefully, watch this weekend? Uh, I'll have film? a link at said places to follow, which is at Carlos Alas Rocky Twitter and Carlos Alas Rocky Instagram. I do have a website. I'll have to update it. Carlos Alas dot com. But uh, and also on Facebook, I have a professional page, the Carlos Alas Rocky. So uh, hopefully I will get a link to something called Horror Hound Cincinnati Film Festival, virtual film festival. Our screening is supposed to play, take place on Saturday. I'm not sure what the date is right now. I believe that's the 23rd. Saturday the 23rd, 7.30 p.m. East Coast time at the Horror Hound Film Festival site. And then there will be a Q&A nice. afterwards. So hopefully I will have the correct link or the Horror Hound site itself will have the correct link for witness infection. So... Excellent. And I'll send you guys cool. the link of my film so that um, you can watch it. I would love that. Oh, that'd yeah. be awesome. Thank you. Thank you so much. Um, you can find us, as always, at probablyscience.com. That's also where we put the show notes and our links to the Patreon and PayPal donation buttons. Thank you very much to everyone who helps support the show. We're just going to take a second to do something we haven't done in a while, and that is to thank our Patreon patrons. Um, thank you, huge thank you to Linda Moulton and uh, uh, Judy uh, Welrath, Emma Wilton, John Hood, Matthew Quick, Eric Roberts, Justin Turner, uh, Mike. Uh, we we don't have a last name for Mike there. Peter Lipchi, Alexander D. Something, Austin Walsworth, uh, Sarah Dwin, Grief, uh, sure, Sarah Dwin. Good pronunciation there, Andy. And thank you very much, uh, whoever you are. Uh, Chris Bednos, uh, Christopher Lauder, David Worth, Dr. Tacey Tater, <laughs> Gavin DeBroy, uh, Greg Van Gorda, Gus uh, Brackets, Russell McNall, Ian Walker, 
Jason Shoemaker, Jake Swenson, Jeff Reader. Uh, oh, my buddy Kirsty. Thank you, Kirsty. Kyle S. Um, Michael Terry. Mike L. Sebastian Koch. Um, Stephen Edmonds. Stu Holding. Vikram Bhatt. Zebulon Keith. Uh, James Casson. Elaine Van Bergen. <laughs> A Boring Potato. Uh, Giovanni Sanchez. Hannah. Someone. I think Robert's according to the email, but uh, may- maybe you just want to be Hannah. Sorry if I just blew that. There's many Hannah Roberts in the world. So I think we're fine. Uh, Mio Ihashi. Uh, Stephen Voigt. Thomas Hatfield. Trevor Ma- Ma- Machina. Machina? Wow. Andrew Foote. Andrew, Andy Senkel. Cake. Just goes by the name Cake. David Neustein. Ebola Cereal. Farty McPooper. Heather Gentry. Mark Williams. Nora Miller. Oil Force. Glenn George. Jackie B. J- Jake Speck. Jim Rokos. Justin McDowell. Kim Chadsey. Matt Jones. Simon. Just Simon. Brody Chandler. Peter Smith. Uh, or Peter Smith. I'm not sure. Tanya Thrasher. W.P. Mulligan. Ada Terrell. David Smith. Jake uh, Adrianson, Cat2, Paul Clayton, David Afflixton, Jesper Peterson, Roger Massey, Graphite Samurai, Samurai, um, a, uh, uh, <laughs> You're not gonna read that one? A political statement about denying people rights or entry because they weren't born, born here will be as morally absurd to future generations as slavery is to us. <laughs> I don't disagree with that. Uh, thank you for donating and making that point. Um, Austin Flanagan, Sean O'Hara, Wesley Sanwo, Hugh Randolph, Dan Monson, LL Dubs, uh, Greg Ananian, uh, Matt G, Ryan Humsky, Adam, uh, Joseph Kidder, Sean G- uh, Geit, Sebastian Barajas, uh, Teresa Sloth, uh, Charlotte Hollandale, Keith and Loretta, Stephanie P, Patrick Chalky, Michael Scully, Moritz Gabolet, uh, Typical Malfeasance, Alison Dennis, Jacob Decker, Luke B, Ryan Wachter, Tiara Dickinson, Bruce Mason, Christina, Kaylee Conkin, Lance Millam, Alex Isaac, and Andre Stenko, Mike Fairweather, Dave, Heather Robinson, uh, Jeremy Walker, Melanie West, Sheila Carty, the Holtman clan, uh, Holtman clan rather, Eric F., David Toyne, Sweet Potato Fries, Coffee Infused Nerd, Ed, Joseph Cooney, Kristen Lewis, Martin Butler, Mahogany Bones, Christopher Wedding, <laughs> Dan Randall, GM, and James Reynolds. Kudos, Matt. I wow. thought you were do half that list. I, That's I'm, amazing. <laughs> yeah, I'm also sorry if we if you haven't got a th- thank you out of that lot. I'm I'm very sorry if we've missed you out and give us a shout <laughs> and give us a nudge. Uh, but thank you everyone for helping us keep this thing going, particularly during this weird, not very earning, very much times. That wasn't a sentence, yes. but you know what I mean. <laughs> Probably science at gmail.com is the email address for any questions, comments, clarifications, stories you'd like us to cover. Uh, you can find us on Twitter at Probably Science and individually at Andy T. Wood and at Matt Kirshen and also Facebook slash Probably Science. Those are all the links. Carlos Alvarez, thank you so yeah. much for joining us. Yeah.